Hi everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I'm terribly happy to welcome you to the episode today because one of my actual real favorite people in the world is my guest on the podcast today, and her name is Jewel Parker Rhodes. <gasps> Uh, we actually do like each other quite a bit, gentle listeners out there in the virtual world, and I'm going to be very pressed to restrain myself from just clapping and giggling and being uh, expressive of my joy in being with her, because we do have serious topics uh, to talk about today. Uh, at some point, I'm going to get Jewel on the podcast to talk about the literary genre, magical realism, but today we're going to talk about another very important book that she's written. I loved Jewel Parker Rhodes' first book with us, Ninth War, which was a beautiful book set during Hurricane Katrina, and then she continued that with her Bayou Girls trilogy, Sugar and Bayou Magic. Sugar is an unrecognized classic that everyone should read, and then she continued on with Towers Falling and Ghost Boys, which has had such a huge impact. Her new book is Black Brother, Black Brother. It is the story of Dante and his twin, Trey. When I say twin, not all twins are identical. Some twins are fraternal. And that plays out heavily in this story about how Dante and Trey go through life, which I think is always an important topic to bear in mind. But now, as we are recording this on... A sunny day in June 2020 uh, with the New York City police helicopters overhead and you know why listeners this is an even more urgent conversation Jewel welcome to the podcast thank you so much I also have to say thank you for saying sugar is a classic I just finished doing a zoom with a class of fifth graders about sugar and I do feel as though that particular book is one of my best <laughs> I love that book. So let's talk a bit about Black Brother, Black Brother. You know, you're an author who puts a lot of heart and soul into your work. There's a lot of you spiritually in each of your novels, and they are very deeply felt books. But this is, I think, your most personal work. That is so, so true. And I think of all the growth that had to take place inside me and in the world for me to tell this particular story. When I met my husband, he was this tall, who was a tall then, he's still tall, but he was a skinny then white guy. I couldn't believe that I was falling in love with him. Race relations were so bad, you know, and they still, oh God, they still are. But I was like, Falling in love, even though I didn't want to, and had to recognize that here was this young white man who was my tea cake, speaking of Zora Neale Hurston, mm -hmm. and that we were meant to be true loves. And now, 36 years later, we are still together. So I said, okay, I'll marry you, but we're not going to have kids. And he, he said, but we can't patronize our children. They're going to be awesome. So I said, okay, we're going to have kids. Now think about that, to be so afraid of the world and for me to be so messed up because of the names I have been called, the brutality that I experienced, uh, the, the abuse of segregation and economic hardship that I did not want to have another child go through those kinds of experiences and to have it be worse coming from the white community because they were othered in a way 
that I just simply didn't want them to be. But I had kids, and I am so glad I did. I, it's the best experience ever. But when Kelly was born, she's my first, first child, Kelly, she presents as white. And it was really interesting because we were at a hospital and Kelly had to go up and get a little surgical procedure on her finger because my children are born with these extra flaps. The story is, is that my children have these extra flaps so they can hold tight onto the world. Uh, and so they took her away and they brought me back a brown baby boy. And I was like, warpath, mama. Where is my child? Where is my child? They literally color-coded us together, which was my experience within the first 24 hours of giving birth. And then afterwards, they sent um, a social worker to me who assumed that I was an unwed black mother and came in to tell me about all the help that they could give me. And it was sort of like, well, that's very nice, but it doesn't apply to me. And what's really startling about this is that I was in a maternity ward where my mother-in-law, my white mother-in-law, had been a nurse. So they knew me. They knew my family and knew my roots. And to this day, I am still petrified that when I become ill enough to be in the hospital, that I'm going to get different care simply because of the color of my skin. We spent years where people thought that I was Kelly's nanny. She was not my daughter. And then in Los Angeles, I gave birth to wonderful Evan. And Evan is brown like me. So we had one kid where I was the nanny. And then for Evan, my husband was, uh, oh, it's so nice that you adopted that brown boy kind of story. We had experiences where we would go on vacation and the kids would be making lays and they would run back to mom and dad and say, this woman kept telling them they couldn't possibly be brother and sister. And my kids were crying because somebody was denying their identity, denying their relationship to one another. Or at gymnastics, you'd have people say, oh, there's no way that they're related. No way at all. This is crazy. And what's really interesting, if you look at my kids, we look like family. The only thing different are the shades, the colors of us, you know, and I always want to have a third kid to sort of be in the middle, so go from fairer to darker. But we try to give the children an upbringing filled with multiculturalism, filled with love and respect for their heritage and everybody else's heritage. Because as my grandmother said, you know, she said, Jewel child, there's nobody in the world better than you, and you're no better than anybody else. We're all a mixed blood stew. And isn't that the truth? We all are genetically mixed. And actually, we can talk about how we all are descended from Lucy, a wonderful black woman from Africa. But for, for us, while we try to be open and accepting and supportive in every way possible, I got to watch how racism worked firsthand through my son in a way in which, as a parent, I felt helpless and hopeless. As Evan became a young teen, people that knew him, his teachers, his school, you know, the neighbors, all of a sudden he became the suspicious black kid. He became the problem black child. He became, you know, this sort of like stereotype that young people of color are sort of like brushed with. And it was so scary. And in fact, we went to four 
different schools trying to find a place that accepted our brown skin, beautiful son and accepted him as the individual that he was. I think it's interesting that we finally ended up at an art school where all the young people were given such um, love and had such empathy for all the diversity that happens in you know the human community. It was fantastic. But this school was in Boston, and there was an employee uh, who worked in maintenance who saw my son, who was you know having the teenage angst, being you know upset. He's in ninth grade, tenth grade, and he called the dean. And then the dean called me, and I lived right across the street from the school. And they said, you know, your son is upset. Come and see him. Come and get him. So I walked across the campus, and there's Evan. But the first thing that the maintenance worker who was white said to me was, next time, I'm going to call the police. And I saw my son's life flash before my eyes. I feared that. You know, what if he had had a stick? What if he had a moment with the police that he could be be dead? And I actually called uh, my husband who was in California and I said to him, come home now. But as much as that story terrified me and still terrifies me, because right now Evan's studying to be a nurse and I keep thinking of Rihanna Taylor, the EMT who home was burst into, that my son is a healthcare worker trying to survive the pandemic, but he still, because of the color of his skin, has to sort of deal with the prospect of police abuse. And he lives in Baltimore, which is a very segregated city. The horrible of all of that is, I am also reminded of the time that when my son was two years old, uh, we had the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. And that day, my family and I, we drove all the way up to Monterey trying to find a place at the end, at the inn, uh, to escape the rioting post, the freeing of all the police officers who had battered Rodney King nearly to his death. And that was when it hit Brad, what it meant to have a brown son. So we live with that, but as he became older, world really made sure that all the terror came back anew. And it's surprising and yet still horrific that here I am, 66 years old. My son is now 30. And still every single day when he goes out into the streets beyond the pandemic, I have to worry about him being mistreated because of the color of his skin. Now, in Black Brother, Black Brother, I write about two brothers, one who is white presenting and has all the privileges of being white presenting, and one who, because of his color of skin, is bullied and called Black Brother, Black Brother in a very negative way. And Dante is actually accused of a crime he didn't commit, and he is you know, picked up by the police at school. They call the police before they call the parents and they cart him off to jail. So I'm also writing about the school to prison pipeline, how children of color K through 12 are given disproportionate punishment, 
are suspended at a greater rate. The police are called upon at a greater rate than white students. And once children of color enter the prison system, they are more likely not to graduate from high school and they are more likely to become part of, you know, the juvenile, the criminal community, the, that they are more likely to be in prison as adults. Um, you can tell I'm getting really passionate and upset. But in my novel, Dante learns about sport. He learns about fencing. And I think sports can have a very healing moment for students. But not every child is meant to do a team sport. And through fencing, Dante learns that it's his strategy, his intellect, his emotions that are most important in winning a fencing battle, that fencing is almost like chess. And through this sport, he begins to see how the world is one big fencing match, one big chess match, where he has to sort of outwit the people who would oppress him or to understand where their oppression is coming from and divert it and educate people to be anti-oppressive, whether it be the judge at his hearing, whether it be his teachers or principals, whether it be a coach who is uh, scoring him unfairly. But through the process, Dante, like my kids, builds a fortress of self-esteem, a fortress of self-love. And Dante says to himself, and I say this to my readers, be you even if others don't see you. And that in and of itself is an unfair burden for children of color to know that there are people who don't see their glory, who don't see and respect their beauty, and that they then have to have the strength and the self-love to remember that the problem is with the others. It is not with them. I'll never forget when I was touring Boston for Ghost Boys and a young black man was talking about, you know, Tamir Rice and talking about how the police assault young men of color. And he said to me, I always thought the problem was me, that something was wrong with me. And he says, you mean this is a pattern? And that's what the Emmett Till story gave him understanding of, the historical pattern of racism. And I was able to hug him and tell him, oh, yes, baby, it's a pattern. And that pattern has to do with the evil in people's hearts. It doesn't have to do with the beauty that you have in and of yourself. My children know that, but they should not have to be wary or leery of a world that wants to question it. But Dante, he can be leery and wary, but he's not going to stop loving himself. He's not going to stop being himself. One of the problems that my family experienced was also how the privilege would be for half the family and not for the other half of the family. And it's made for some interesting dynamics. And this novel is not about, you know, what my kids felt or feel because I don't want to speak for them. You know, the parents and black brother, black brother are most like my husband and I, but think about that, how racism can also distort, interfere with father, son, mother, daughter, sibling relationships, that it can undermine the family. And it makes me think about the days when 
in slavery, families were ripped and torn apart. Racism is still doing that if you don't have a strong sense of self, a sense of self-love. And I think my proudest accomplishment, and this is what I also wanted to convey in the book, that family is a great resource and a power. Brothers, siblings are a great resource and power to help you sustain love, sustain self-love in a world that would want to make you small. I would say I've succeeded with my husband in doing that with my family, and it has been a great, great joy of my life. And I'm trying to share that joy with readers Interesting, too, we have the genetic tests, and all of us, again, are the mixed bloods, too. And there is no person of color in America that you know, comes from descendants of slavery that doesn't have, you know, a mixed blood, you know, that doesn't carry white as well as black blood. One of the things that there's a humanity project where this artist photographer is cataloging colors and she's picked out the idea that there are over 4,000, she's documented this, 4,000 skin tones among humanity. So the idea that anyone would use skin tone to represent somebody's race is ridiculous. And that skin tone does not represent one's genetic background. So you can be a biracial kid, black parents, white parents. You could have biracial mixed blood in you. Like Condoleezza Rice on TV the other day said, I'm 44% white, you know, <laughs> that the genes are our genes and we all share them and we are all a melting pot. So shade is just a superficial difference. The way that hair color is or eye color is, you know, it's a superficial difference. And that we let a superficial difference then guide racist behavior, that's ridiculous. So I think with the genetic testing and being aware of how we're really all one big stew might encourage people to remember or to be reminded of the fact that it's humanity, heart, mind, and soul that connects us. Features are superficial. They're external. The internal selves make us all one big family. You're talking about Angelica Das is the artist. Uh, she comes yes, thank you from, very much. She comes from Brazil, which is another uh, multiracial, multi-ethnic society. Um, I am also intrigued by what you're talking about with the genetic testing. One of the podcasts that I listen to is Native Appropriations. It's an indigenous interest podcast, and they had Kim Tallbear on one of the episodes talking specifically about genetic testing and how little it is geared actually toward people of color. Absolutely. Because there are very few samples of this. And and sort of the idea, I see those um, ads on there that uh, where people say, well, I'm 24% Nigerian. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and yes, this is me, the nice middle-aged white lady saying this, because I think about what you're talking about with the meaningfulness of our existence, the meaningfulness of our relationships, and how we need to celebrate each of these individual lives and their beauty and meaningfulness. I have a I'm so sorry, people. I really am sorry that the soapbox powers have been engaged, but here goes. I strongly dislike the phrase, if you see something, say something. Because what did you see? 
and what will you say? And I think it's interesting to think about Dante and Trey within this context of, well, what do people see about Dante and what do they say about him? What mm -hmm. do we choose to say? If we see George Floyd, what do we see about him? What do we say about him? If we see Sandra Bland, uh, what do we say about Breonna Taylor? What do we say about Tamir Rice? What do we say about a little girl, a six-year-old girl in Florida who has a temper tantrum and ends up in a psych ward by the end of the afternoon? If we see something, what is it that we're seeing? Do we take a moment to stop and think about that? And then what do we say and who do we say it to? I think of the maintenance man at Evans School. What really did he see? He saw yes. a teenager having a moment because teenagers are filled with hormones and have moments. And so what should he say? I think that really is a question that we all have to ask ourselves. What are we seeing and what really should we say? It really does speak to the colorism that's so prevalent in our world, you know, that people have a bias about color um, and that there can be inter as well as intra-racial prejudice. Uh, but the whole idea that slavery is dead, the justification and legacy for slavery is not dead. It exhibits itself when we look at people and we use color and we sort of bring up this whole catalog of what that means because of their color. It's, you know, hell, we are not Crayola crayons. Do you know what I mean? We are so much more than that. We are human beings. And I think people still forget that when they're seeing, they're seeing, you know, the comic distortions. And this goes another thing that I have. I hate comic book distortions of black people's uncovers. That's just a, an aside, you know, or the way that the, the representation sort of gets modified in a way that, you are, as a person of color, sometimes on jacket covers or in magazines, you look less like a person. And learning how to see as a person is, well, you shouldn't have to learn it. We unlearn being able to see people as people. And society teaches you to see people as representations of all these various things. So racism, I firmly believe, is taught prejudice is taught. And those people who think that because of their education, you know, I have a PhD, uh, you know, I live in a diverse neighborhood, so I see clearly, you need to check yourself to make sure that you really do. I think the white woman who called the police on the African-American bird watcher. Amy you know, Cooper she, is yes. her name. Um, <laughs> my mind sometimes uh, blurs things, and I apologize for getting names and all that kind of stuff, because sometimes I get so filled up that I can't contain it all. So I just have like these broad outlines of aura that that is about as, as close to something I can get. Mm -hmm. And the hold on for a second, because I want to talk about George Floyd's um, murder. But, you know, even in businesses or Franklin Templeton, where she worked, I'm sure they had diversity training. They've had sensitivity training, which, by the way, nobody is sure that that really works. Right. But you would have thought that this woman was perhaps least likely to respond in the way she did. And yet when she was feeling that she was threatened, when she was feeling scared, she reverted to a way of seeing that was 
potentially more destructive uh, in the same way that George Floyd's death could have been destructive for that black man. But George Floyd's and the moment of protest now, I think is so important. But sometimes I just stop and think, I saw a man die on TV. And it's like, I still can't get my mind around that. And there's ways in which I remember or, you know, think I remember and this whole legacy behind me. And it's like their deaths in my dream are playing and replaying. That it's like through George Floyd, I can now, even as a person of color, feel even more deeply what it would be like um, in the past to be a person of color trying to live your life freely. But yeah, we all saw a man die on TV. Damn right we should be protesting. And he died, I'm convinced, by the, because of the color of his skin. And I think our Homeland Secretary said, oh no, if he had been white, he would have died anyway. I do not believe that is true not at all. Not for a minute. If he had been, not for a minute. And, you know, actually, you know, <laughs> in my family and from the adult mom and dad to son and daughter, you know, yeah, we have seen the differences. We can catalog the differences and we fight against external views all the time by being aware of who we are internally, you know. But having experienced it, it's kind of like I was like, racistly oppressed in ways which my parents and grandparents taught me. And yeah, that's the way it was. But to see it happen through my son and not happen through my daughter's experiences in some ways has been really illuminating about how race works in America. Kelly, and of course, has her own issues in that she identifies as a, as a black woman. And she very often has to stand up and and speak because people, by looking at her, making assumptions, oh, I can say this in front of you. I could do this in front of you. And it shouldn't be that there should be a society or an agreement that if we're all white together, we can say bad things about other people, you know. So whether Kelly was a person of color or not, you know, everybody needs to speak up and, you know, seek justice and, and inclusion. But I suspect there is a lot more hurt that one day will come out in my daughter's writing than I know about. Jewel, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know we haven't spoken in too much detail about the book, but I really do think when people read the story of Dante and Trey, they will see how, how deeply felt this work is and how firmly rooted in reality of your seeing your children, what you saw of them, what you see of your readers and what you want to say of them and to them. And uh, I appreciate so much your time. Thank you. I appreciate that my book is in, is in the world because I am old enough to remember that when I wrote my first book and I have a letter from an editor that's in my file cabinet that said that they couldn't publish this book because nobody wanted to read about a black woman. 
And so I am thankful that I've lived long enough to have a world that can do better. Publishing should do far better, but that I am able to write what I care about. And people are helping me present and give it to the world and share it with the world. So thank you and everybody who participates in that. And what I want to say to people who are writing stories, I do believe that there is a system that we need to dismantle that sort of judges what stories ought to be told or not told. And while there is a crack of inclusion and diversity, we need windows thrown open to every heritage, every writer, every person who's an artist, everyone everywhere in order to hear all the stories that are demanding to be told. Thank you, Jewel. Gentle listeners out there in the virtual world, Black Brother, Black Brother is on shelves now and you should make a place for it on your bedside table today. And we'll see you next time.